you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me to the end of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 20. Ending our series through the book of Mark that we began when I got here a little over a year ago. Um, this is a bittersweet day for me uh, in that it's the end of Mark. It's, Mark has been a good friend to us, I think, in this last year. Uh, appointed us to Jesus each and every week. Uh, so it'll be nice in some ways to move on to something else. Uh, but we never really move on to a different message than what he's given us uh, in this book, in this year. But as we come to the close of our series going through the book of Mark, starting in verse 9 of chapter 16. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. I was in, I think, the third grade when the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy came out. And when I went and saw it, I thought it might have been the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I loved it. I would go out in the backyard and play like I was Legolas with his bow, shooting at orcs. I would follow through with everything. I loved the movie so much. And I loved it so much that as an avid reader, when I was a kid, I decided I was going to read the Lord of the Rings books. Uh, But because I was a kid who didn't know what he was doing, I said, I've already seen the first movie. I'll start with the second book. Uh, (laughs) So it took me, I think, a year to read it. It was long. It was hard. I had no clue what was happening most of the time. But I got through the second book and decided to move on to the third one. And I was shocked when I read the third book because, I guess, spoiler alert for this book series has been around for 100 years and these movies have been around for 25 the, when you read the third book, they destroy the ring like halfway through. And then there's another 200 pages of stuff. They have to go back to the Shire. There's a lot of other things that happen within the story. And as I was reading it, third year old, not third year old, third grade Nathan thought, what are we even still doing here? The book's over, right? You destroyed the ring, end it. All this other stuff is completely extra. You don't really need any of this. But maybe that example doesn't work for some of you. That may be too old of a book series, too uh, esoteric, too uh, fantasy-driven for you guys to have read it. So here's a more modern example that I also encountered just a few years later. Uh, When I was in about the fifth grade, I read through the Left Behind book series. I started in the beginning, made it all the way through. 
And uh, if you've read those and you made it all the way through however many there are, I think there's 11, 12, 13, somewhere through there. Um, when you get to the last book, it's called Glorious Appearing. And Jesus comes back like 80 pages in. And then there's another like 250 pages of stuff that they, they made up the whole thing, but they really made up that last part. Just stuff that no one really understands. No one really knew. That felt really extra. It felt like Jesus' back ended. Like the whole thing is about waiting for him to come back, and he did it. So why are you still talking? Why are you still writing? When you read the text today, the longer ending of Mark, especially the first verse or two, you may have that same reaction. You might especially have that same reaction of this is extra. This is stuff we don't need. If your Bible has the note in it that mine does before verse 9, in between verses 8 and 9, mine says this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And then everything that follows is in brackets. It's in parentheses as if it's extra and doesn't have to be there. The parallel there between what's happening in this text and the the introduction that I just gave you uh, is because it would almost be like if now someone came up and said, you know what, Tolkien didn't write that last 150 pages. It is extra. It doesn't have to be there. Tim LaHaye, Jerry B. Jenkins, they actually didn't write those extra 200 pages at the end of Glorious Appearing. That was something that someone else did. They never meant for that to be there. What if someone else had said that uh, they didn't write that part? That's the question that's raised by this text at the end of Mark. Is this supposed to be there or not? What do we do with it? Let me try to briefly explain what's happening here, what the controversy is, why it has those uh, confusing words before you get to verse 9, so that I can tell you what we're going to do about it, and so that I can actually get to a sermon this morning instead of a lecture, uh, instead of just giving you 45 minutes on ancient manuscripts. How our Bible came to be, how it came to exist, for the the vast majority of it, like 99.9% of it, We are incredibly confident that we have the actual words of God given to us exactly the way that we are supposed to have them. Exactly how they were written down originally and then transmitted to us over many years. The Bible was inspired by God but written by men. It was copied many times. And in the course of that time period, when it was being copied and transmitted and sent out and recopied into a different language and then recopied and then given somewhere else, the originals at some point were lost to where we don't have the original manuscripts, the original copies that Mark actually wrote. Well, we have our copies of copies. And then over time, as that continued to happen, as that process continued, some of the, the earlier copies were lost and some of the other copies were refound. And then remade. And sometimes they were compiled. And sometimes a page would go missing. And sometimes a scribe would make an error. So what we have now today in the form of our Bible is the best guess that we have by taking all of the available copies that we have and bringing them together and saying, okay, they all agree on 99.9% of what we see here. But that other 0.01% right there is where some of the the question comes in. It's where things start to get a little bit confusing. For the vast majority of our Bible, we read it and we know this is exactly what we're supposed to have. There are really just two passages that we come to and go, "Uh, I don't know if that's actually supposed to be there or not. This 
Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, and then John 8, the the story of the woman caught in adultery. We're not positive if those were actually supposed to be there because what happened was over the course of most of Christian history, it has been there. But then at some point, we started looking back and the earliest copies that we had of the book of Mark, what we would say are the best copies of the book of Mark, the clearest ones, the ones with the fewest errors, the ones that are most complete, They just stopped at verse 8. They didn't have verses 9 through 20. So then we kept looking, and the farther back we went, the the more it seemed like people didn't refer to those last 12 verses. It seemed like they almost didn't know about them. And then we found some that had a different verse 9. That's not what we have here, but yet was also added to the verse 8 that we're we're very confident about. Then we had a different one that had a, a longer verse 14. So what scholars did was they looked at all of this and they started to question, wait, is 9 through 20 actually supposed to be there or not? Because when you read it, it kind of feels tacked on. The language is different. The vocabulary is different. The focus is different. Verses 1 through 8 talked about Jesus meeting them in Galilee, and we never really get anything about him meeting them in Galilee in these last 12 verses. It feels, in some sense, as if it's not supposed to be there. So then the question is, what do I do with these 12 verses at the end of Mark? Is it the Bible? Is it scripture? Or is it not? And these scholars who are saying, I don't think this is scripture. Most scholars today would say, nope, not Mark. We shouldn't teach it. It shouldn't be in your Bible. And these aren't just liberal scholars. These aren't people who think that you can just take your scissors to Scripture and get rid of wherever you don't want to be there. They're people who would believe, just like you and me, about what the Bible is and what it says, what it contains. And even they would say, yeah, because I have such a high bar for what is and isn't Scripture, I don't think this is supposed to be there. In fact, when I told friends of mine in seminary before we got here that I would be preaching through Mark, when I got here, the the second question I always got, the first question was, why Mark? You could pick anything. Why, why are you choosing Mark? The second question every time was, what are you going to do about the ending? Are you going to preach it? And let me tell you, I uh, had many conversations, and I was the only one that said I would preach this text. Everyone else said no. Most of the, the pastors, the Christian leaders, the theologians, the Bible scholars that I would follow would say, I don't think this is scripture. We shouldn't be preaching it. We shouldn't be teaching it. The church that I was at in Kansas City before we got here got to the end of Mark in this last year while we were here. And that pastor preached a sermon about how he shouldn't be preaching this text, which I think is ironic, right? Like, if you're not supposed to be preaching this text, surely you're also not supposed to be preaching a sermon about how you're not supposed to be preaching this text. So then what do we do? You may be asking yourself why I'm telling you all this, that you didn't really need all this introduction before we get there. But I think the way we think through these things really matter. When we believe, like we do, that this book not only contains but is the word of God given to us, That he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of him, which we receive through his word. That's from 2 Peter 1.3. That he has revealed himself truly and without error in this book. When we think that the very words were chosen by him to tell us something specific, something important, then what those words are, whether we have the right words or not, that's really important, right? 
I mean, you've heard me preach over this whole last year. How many times have I looked at a particular word in a text and talked about it for several minutes as if it really matters that it's that word and not a different word? So can I do that with these words, whether they're supposed to be there or not? So the question then is, if I have so little confidence, if I'm so worried that these might not be the words of Scripture, if so many other people would say, don't preach this text, why am I still doing it today? Why am I preaching it to you? I mean, if most people who think like I think wouldn't do it, if most men who are much smarter than I am wouldn't do it, if it would have been so easy just to stop last week and be done with the book of Mark, to move on, and none of you probably would have even noticed for the most part. You would have said, I don't know, I guess we're done. He preaches what he wants, we're done with Mark. Then why am I eventually, someday, whenever I finish this introduction, going to preach these verses this morning? I have four reasons quickly that I'm, I'm going to show you why I am going to preach this text. First of all, we don't know that they're not supposed to be there. There are still plenty of people who think that they were originally there. There's still people who think they weren't originally there. But then Mark, after his gospel got started sending around, said, you know what? I really uh, kind of botched that conclusion. I guess I'll add a few verses here at the end. There's still people who think that Mark didn't add them later, but that someone else did. Someone else came in just as inspired by God and the Holy Spirit and added inspired words to the end of this text so that they're in our Bible on purpose. We don't know that these verses shouldn't be here. So we have to, I think, hesitate before we just start cutting them out. We shouldn't lightly say these are not the words of God. It's a pretty high bar in my mind to be able to, to reach to where we say, absolutely, this is not scripture. I can't preach it. I can't teach it. Second reason I'm going to do it is because they're still in the book, right? Like if I had stopped at verse 8, surely someone would have said, I thought there were 12 more verses. My Bible sure has 12 more verses. Does your Bible have 12 more verses? Why did he stop? He didn't skip over the divorce passage a few chapters ago. Why did he skip over this thing about the resurrection? That doesn't make any sense. These words, these verses are still in the book. They do have a massive asterisk next to them. They may be in parentheses. They may be uh, told about you in a footnote. But when they made my Bible, when they made the ESV, they took other verses out because they were so confident that those verses aren't supposed to be there. Uh, Mark 15, 28. You may not have noticed when I was preaching through that passage a few weeks ago, but Mark 15, verse 28, isn't there. Just one page before in my Bible it goes from 27 to 29 because they said, nope, that was added later. It's not supposed to be there. It's not part of scripture. They didn't do that with Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. They did put a massive asterisk. They did put them in parentheses, but they haven't cut them out yet. So I don't think that I should take scissors to the end of Mark, partly because people who get to make those calls... People who have made those calls, who have gotten rid of other things, haven't yet done that with these verses. I mean, who am I in my roughly 40 hours of study each week to determine, nope, I have the perfect solution to this. I know it's not scripture, so I'm going to cut it. In violation of all of these other people who I trust to translate the Bible for me, why would I say, nope, I can't do that? And I get that this conversation can be a little weird, maybe even a little scary whenever we start to think about it. I mean, if these verses aren't supposed to be here, how do we know that the rest of them are? How do we know that there's not even more that we should be confused about? 
But if that's you right now, let me try to comfort you by pointing out to you how much of your Bible doesn't have this asterisk to it. How much of your Bible isn't in parentheses? How much of your Bible doesn't have this kind of warning attached to it? The vast majority of it, you read it and it just is what it is. We are very confident that we have the right words. In the rare places, and they are rare, where we're not totally sure, where we have conflicting manuscripts, conflicting copies that have slightly different wording in one place or the other, they'll tell you. You'll have a footnote. You'll have a little, little thing at the end that says, hey, uh, some manuscripts also say this. Some manuscripts have this word here instead of this one. In the, the Greek versus the Hebrew, there's slightly different wording here, so you've got to figure that out. There are only two passages, here and in John 8, as I said before, that are really in question. Only two sections out of your whole Bible, 66 books from three different languages, over several thousand years, dozens of different authors, 2,000 years ago, copied, 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 retransmitted, copied, before we had a printing press, copied by hand, painstakingly over the years with people who it was their job to do, given over, and now we have one half page total that we're a little shaky on, that we don't quite know about. That's incredible. That God has so preserved his word that we might be able to still read it 2,000 years ago with the full confidence that we have the words of God, that's incredible. It's even more so when you consider that Jesus is resurrected in all four Gospels. He is who he is. He did what he did, even if those passages shouldn't be there. There is basically no church doctrine that's affected by these questions of whether this should or shouldn't be part of the text. Which takes me to the the third reason. This longer ending may be the true ending. But as far as we can tell, even if it's not, it became the primary ending. It became the ending that everyone had in all their copies as early as the second or third century. As early as maybe even like just a hundred years after Jesus was around. This was part of the copy that pretty much everyone had. So most Christians have read the longer ending of Mark as if it were part of the Bible for most of church history. And everything's been just fine. The walls haven't come crumbling down. We haven't been led wildly into error, even if these words aren't part of Scripture. I mean, if you were born 150 years ago, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. We would just assume that it's Scripture because it was there. We wouldn't have even known about some of the other manuscripts, some of the other questions that we are trying to answer today in this text. And if you have noticed anything about how I do things when it comes to church, the older the better when it comes to stuff that really matters. When it comes to what we believe, our doctrine, the, the, the things we do when we gather together. The older we can go with that, the better. The more tied we can be to tradition with that, the better. The more like we could be a church from 2,000 years ago, the better in the things that really matter. Now, the things that don't really matter, I want to be as hip, as modern, as contemporary as we could possibly be. That's why we sing some new songs. That's why when we were replacing the projector, we replaced it with TVs. That's why when we do graphics, we do them the way we do them. That's why over the next few months, when you look around and see, hey, that used to be a different color, that's why we do those kind of things. And you look around and see, hey, I didn't notice that that was there before. It's because we're trying to, in the things that don't matter, be as modern, as new as we could possibly be. And then hold really tight and fast to as old as we could possibly be in the things that really matter. 
One of the reasons that we are going to do that is because it matters what the church has believed throughout all of Christian history. But on the stuff that matters, let's be honest, traditional as we could possibly be. By traditional, I'm emphasizing, I mean like 2,000 years of tradition. If you just started doing it 50 years ago, that is way too new for me. Let's go way back, as far back as we can go. And this argument about Mark's ending is mostly only 150 years years old. So whenever we look at that, I'm probably going to side with the first 1,800 years of church history rather than just the last 150. The final reason I'm okay preaching this passage, whenever I get there, is because I think these words are true, even if they aren't technically the words we're supposed to have. Everything we read in here is corroborated from other parts of Scripture. There's nothing we get in here that is different or conflicting with anything else that we read. There's nothing we get in here that's that wild or crazy, something that we should be confused about or scared by. Even the weirder parts, the snakes, the poison, if we understand them rightly, we can point to other verses that say these same things for all 12 verses. So these words are true, even if these literal words do happen to be extra. Even if these literal words do happen to be added on later, we can trust them. And I think that I can preach them because the Bible says them. If not here all at the same time, then compiled from many other verses in many different places, the Bible says everything that we are reading in these verses as if it's true, because it is. So I will preach this text, but it's going to be a little bit different than usual. It's going to be a little bit, uh, hopefully, shorter than usual. It's going to look different. It's going to have a lot more support from other passages. Uh, But I will preach this text because I think it's true, because I think it's been there for a long time, because I think it may be correct, and because I think it's going to be okay. So, from the text today, now that I have finally finished the longest introduction you hopefully will ever hear from me as your pastor— Uh, We can see two right responses to the resurrection of Jesus in this text. Two right ways that we can see what happened in Christ's resurrection and respond to it. I will be backing up everything I say with another verse from the Bible which supports it. So that you can trust it, even if these verses aren't supposed to be here. You can know that these points, the truths in these texts, are still true. You can see two ways that we should rightly respond to his resurrection. The first way we should respond to the resurrection of Jesus is to believe it. We should believe that he was resurrected. We're given these details after Christ comes back to give further support and evidence that he did come back. He did rise from the grave. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. We also get these same facts from John 20, verses 11 through 18. The instance where she sees who she thinks is a gardener, and he calls her Mary in the, in the garden after he's come back. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He called her by her name. This happened. But the focal point of the text here in Mark isn't on the fact of his resurrection, but it's on their unbelief. She told the disciples that he was back, and they didn't immediately believe her. But we should. That's how we should respond to this message. The emphasis, as you'll see throughout this text, is on their unbelief as an admonition that they should have been believing his resurrection. 
We should also believe not only that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, but he, uh, that he appeared to them on the road to Emmaus, verses 12 and 13. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. We get this same story in much more detail in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, which I won't read. But uh, he appeared to them, two on the road to Emmaus who didn't know who he was. And then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It happened. Luke told us. Mark has told us. Yet when these two went and told everyone else, they still didn't believe he had come back. But we should. That should be our response. We should also believe that he appeared to the disciples. Verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. We get several other examples of this, but the clearest parallel is likely from Luke 24, verses 36 through 43, which I will read. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. He came back to life and appeared to the disciples. He came as a man, not a ghost with an incorporeal body. He could be touched. He ate. Just as he lived as a man, he came back as a man. And he is still now a man in heaven, ruling and reigning over the universe as the eternal son. They didn't believe, and so he rebuked them. Back to Mark 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. That same rebuke is here for anyone today who fails to believe in his resurrection. He died and came back to life. He was seen by Mary. He was seen by the two on the road to Emmaus. He was seen by the eleven again. First Corinthians says that he was seen by more than 500 people alive. So the first, the most important response we should have to his resurrection is to believe it. That it happened. That yes, he died. And yes, he came back. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who paid the penalty for your sins. You should have received death for your sins, but he took that punishment for you and in your place. And he died with it. But then, when he came back to life, he killed death. His life is the death of death. That's what Jesus did. But he only did that for you. It only matters for you if you believe that he did that for you. Just the facts of his resurrection do you no good. Unless you believe in them. If you respond to this message, his gospel, with this good news, with faith, believing that it's true, and therefore, because it is true, putting all your hope, all your trust on his sacrifice in your place for the forgiveness of your sins, that's how it's applied to you. And now, out of faith, you repent of your sins, deciding to turn away from them, to no longer live your life in a way that would displease Christ, but to honor him, to serve him out of love for him giving him full power over the life you now live, which he bought for you.
by dying and coming back to life. And this repentance isn't a one-time thing. This belief isn't a one-time thing. You didn't repent and believe that one time when you were six and now you're good. You check the box. You're fine for all of eternity. One time repentance would be sufficient to cover all your sins. Absolutely. If you actually truly repented that one time, it would be sufficient. But those whose sins are covered don't settle for that one time repentance. Those who actually believe the message, those who have turned away and are now living their lives in service to him, their Lord, they don't repent just that one time. Repentance is a daily practice for us. We are supposed to be constantly turning from our sin, daily putting those sins within us to death so that we can have and enjoy the life that Christ has won for us. That response is the first and most important response to Christ's resurrection. We have to believe it. We have to be changed by it. But once we've done that, once we have believed, once we've repented, once we've been changed, that leads us to the second response we should have to his resurrection. We should tell others about it, just as he told us to do. We should not only believe, but we should also tell. That's the second response we should have to his resurrection. We have to tell the world about who Christ is and what he's done. Verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now that we know he has come back, now that we believe those facts, it's our duty. It's our obligation to go. To go everywhere. Into the whole world. And when we go, we're to bring with us this message. Christ's gospel. Who he is, what he's done. To the whole creation, to everyone. The same thing that you believed is what you now send out and tell to them. And we get this same mandate from Jesus in a way you're more likely familiar with in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which say this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. We take this gospel message everywhere. We're making disciples of Jesus Christ everywhere, just as we are disciples of Christ. We teach them his commands. We baptize them in the name of the triune God, going with his message, with his command and with his blessing. But our message can't only be a positive note of salvation because salvation only matters. Salvation is only important if you're being saved from something, right? If, if there's salvation but not from anything, it's not actually salvation. It's just kind of just being. It's just existence. But we have to tell them the consequences of not believing. Verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Your options, according to this text, are salvation or condemnation. Salvation comes through the work of Christ on your behalf, applied to you through faith and belief, which is proclaimed, pronounced, and publicly acknowledged by baptism. We get the same idea that baptism is integral to your salvation in Acts of chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, who was preaching before this passage, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Salvation absolutely comes by grace through faith. But 
I can't see that happen to you. I can't look at you and say whether you've had grace imparted to you or not. Whether you have faith or not. Now, I have no evidence that you have believed. I have no evidence that you've had faith when I just look at you. When I just see you. But you know what I can see? You know what evidence reveals whether you've believed in this gospel? Repentance. A changed life. I can see that. I can see that you've believed, had faith, because you've repented. Because you're different now. But I can also see baptism. Baptism is designed to be the public ordinance given to the church wherein you tell everyone who sees you that you have been buried with Christ. And you have been raised with him in his resurrection. Baptism doesn't save you, no. But those who are saved get baptized. Because that's how you show that you have been saved. I can't see grace given to you. I can see you get dunked underwater and come back up. I can see that picture of what Christ has done in your life. Baptism is the public profession of the faith, the belief, the repentance that we are supposed to have. I mean, hungry people eat. When I look at you, I can't tell that you're hungry. I have no way to be able to figure that out. Except whenever I put food in front of you, and then guess what hungry people do? They eat. Saved people get baptized. I will be able to know that you have believed because I saw you get baptized. That's why it says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's why Peter told them to repent and to be baptized. These are the evidences of the faith and belief through which you're actually saved by grace. You're saved by grace and you follow through on that salvation with the evidence. Repentance. Belief. Baptism. Without the evidence, I have no confidence that you've actually repented and believed without this grace given to you your only other option is to receive the just payment for your sins which is death which is condemnation we get this same idea from john three sixteen through 18 i know we we've heard the first one we, we got to read the other verses after though for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When we are telling our message, the gospel to the world, we have to tell people the truth. We have to be honest with them, that they are condemned already because they have not believed. But that's not the end of our message. It's not the good news part of our message. We also tell them that salvation is available to all, to anyone, through belief and faith, which is revealed through repentance and baptism. We have to tell them the consequences of rejecting this good news. And when we go, we should go in full confidence, telling them in the power of God which he has given to us. Verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And my name... They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. This section, if you were picking one in the longer ending of Mark that confuses people. One in the longer ending of Mark that you might be more apt to say, I don't know if that's supposed to be there or not. It would be these verses. But... While the degree to which we should expect to see these same signs in our own lives is debatable, what's not debatable is that all of these things happened in the lives of the disciples 
and the early church, just as Jesus said. They cast out demons. Paul in Philippi was being followed and harassed by a demon-possessed girl. And then in Acts 16, 18, it says this. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. They also spoke in tongues. This happened several times throughout the book of Acts. At Pentecost in Acts 2, 4. Where it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It happened again when Gentiles began to be saved in Acts chapter 10, verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then again, when the Ephesians received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 19, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Even the snake thing happened. Jesus gave them this same promise elsewhere in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So even if we wanted to get rid of this weird snake promise in from the Bible, we'd have to do more than just get rid of the end of Mark 16. And there's another example of the snake promise as well. And I think an affirmation of the poison invulnerability also in Acts chapter 28, verses 3 through 5. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however shook off the creature into the fire, and suffered no harm. Snakes and poison at the same time. A double confirmation of this text. And last but certainly not least, the healing promise. This happens a lot throughout the early church, but uh, a simple explanation is uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 17. When Saul, who is later to be who we know him as Paul, has been struck blind by the sight of Jesus on the road to Damascus, it says this, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. All of these promises that Jesus gave came true. Every single one of them. But they weren't given for us to think that we have superpowers, that we're supposed to be a sister serpent and Dr. Demonic, to go about and try to exercise all of these powers everywhere we go, to just start grabbing vipers and see if they are going to be able to make us poisonous, to drink all the poison we see just to see what happens. That's not what we're encouraged to do here. They're given to the early church and affirmed in the early church so that their preaching of the gospel would be believed Because it was accompanied by the power of God. The point was to go with his blessing. Go in his power. Not just go and tell, but go knowing that he is with you and in the words that you are giving to those people. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 says this. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to by us, uh, by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. They were supposed to go forth in the power of God, bearing his message of his gospel, which was affirmed by his accompanying signs. And now we also should go telling the world with that same message, with that same power, 
with the full confidence that our message has already been affirmed by these promises coming to pass, knowing that God is with us. And as we go, as we tell the world, we have to tell them that Jesus is king. He reigns. Verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Having accomplished his work on earth, he ascended to heaven, where he now is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things as Lord and King of the universe. We see his ascension in several texts, but here's Luke 24, verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So he absolutely ascended, even without these texts here. And he is absolutely at the right hand of the Father, even without these texts as well. Hebrews ten twelve. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he's still there. Not only did he die, but he came back. And having accomplished his work, offering once and for all the single sufficient sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he remains until he returns. Knowing these truths, it's up to us to respond by believing them. Not just acknowledging intellectually that they're true. Not just having some kind of defense intellectually for saying that all of these things happened. But by actually believing that they're true for us. By having faith. Placing our hope, our trust in his finished work. By following through on that faith with repentance and belief. Repentance and baptism. But we don't just get to believe and call it quits. Christ has given us a job to do. He's given us work to do, to go and tell his message, his gospel to the whole world, that they might be saved as well. So believe, go, respond to the resurrection the way that the ending of Mark is telling you to. Believe that it's true. Believe he is who he said he is. He did what he said he did. And then tell everyone you know about that same truth. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the truths in this text. Thank you for not only dying for us and in our place, but also coming back, giving us new life, giving us new hope, giving us a place, a full assurance to put our trust, our faith, our belief. Help for us to respond to these facts of your resurrection by believing them, by knowing they're true, yes, but knowing even more so that they're true for us. That when you died, you died for us. When you raised, you raised for us. Help for us also to be able to tell this same message to everyone around us. For us to know that you didn't give us these facts. You didn't come back to life for these reasons just so that we might have this message for ourselves. But that you told us, you commissioned us to go out and to give this same message to the world. With your power, with your blessing, with your affirmation. Help for us to actually respond that way. Thank you for this book, this gospel of Mark. That we spent so much time in. Help for us to know it's true and to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.